Welcome to episode 358 with my guest, uh, Shane Moss. We're going to talk about uh, looking at mental health, mental illness, depression, loss of hope, etc. We're going to look at it from unconventional uh, angles, and uh, Shane's a great guy to to talk to about that. Um, My name, in case you were wondering is Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's uh, it's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, The Twitter and Instagram handle, you can follow... uh, me and the show at is MentalPod, and MetalPod.com is also the website. And you can go there, you can join the forum. Uh, a lot of times people will email me and say, I'm looking for an episode that touches on this or that. Well, the first thing you should try doing is going to our website and using our search box on uh, just type in keywords that you're looking for. If that doesn't turn up anything, go to the forum and post under the podcast thread and ask anybody um, if they know of an episode. And uh, and if that doesn't work, then, then try me. Uh, but I have a horrible memory because I smoked a lot of weed as a kid because I didn't want to be in my body. How were you? It's good to be here. Um, I knew there was one other thing I wanted to share. I cooked today. I made uh, I made Thanksgiving a uh, pretty big meal for about a half dozen uh, friends, and uh, it turned out good. If it didn't, they didn't say anything. Let's put it that way. I made halibut. I made a five-pound turkey breast, green beans. I bought the potatoes. I bought the stuffing, and I bought the gravy. But I didn't hide it. I let that. I bought the yams. Now that I think of it, I I really didn't do that much. Now I did do a lot, and uh, more than anything, it was so nice to uh, celebrate with people that I love, and I love having people in my life that I can say I love you, and they're comfortable with me saying it who can tell me they love me, and I'm comfortable with them saying it, and we both know that we mean it. There's something so relaxing, and they have fucked up senses of humor, like I do. And they're so, there's something so nice um, about being able to just let that chatter in our heads out um, and feel safe doing it. There's so many things I'm thankful for uh, on this uh this is actually Thanksgiving as I'm uh, as I'm recording this. It's about eight thirty my time, and uh, I'm thankful I can still play hockey at my age. I'm thankful I have a roof over my head. I'm thankful that I'm food secure. Uh, me, not so secure, but my supply of food, yeah, pretty secure. That's not a given. I think I take for granted so often how lucky I am to live in a part of the world where I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from or that I'm not living in this country and worried about where my next meal is coming from because there are many people who aren't food secure in our country. Um, I moved into a house uh, about three weeks ago um, from the apartment I was telling you about with the uh, murder crime scene and the... uh, uh, and then weeks later, a uh, trail of blood from the elevators 
to one of the apartments. Um, I'm grateful that I was able to move out of that and into a, uh, a place that I, I like and I feel comfortable. And I don't know if I shared with you or not, but the last day I was at uh, Murder Manor, uh, I pull into my parking spot and a guy, and I would keep a bottle of windshield wiper fluid in front of my parking space. And I pull in and this guy, a couple parking spots down from me, has my bottle of windshield wiper fluid and is filling his car with it. I didn't realize it at the time, or I would have said something. Maybe I wouldn't. No, I would have said something. I don't know what I would have said. But, oh, I'm so glad to be uh, to be out of that place. It was very bro-y, too. And it, it uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> anyway, I'm, uh, I'm grateful to live in a place that's quiet, where people aren't stealing my... Uh, my windshield wiper fluid. Um, the neighbors are nice. It's quiet. Um, I'm grateful that I know I have people in my life who will help me if I ask for it. I'm grateful for the hummingbirds in my backyard. I'm, I'm grateful that I'm going to soon be able to start woodworking again because I didn't have a garage when I was living in the apartments. And uh, once I can get some beefy electricity into the garage, um, I'll hopefully be able to start making stuff for monthly donors and raffling off cutting boards again, maybe even uh, a coffee table or something like that. Uh, I'm grateful that I have a job I love that is appreciated by people and that they let me know. I'm grateful for those of you that email me your appreciation or if I bump into you on the street, you you share that or at a live event. Um, I'm grateful for my guests who bear their souls and make this show possible. I'm so grateful for the survey takers. I don't know if you guys realize how much that means to me and how big a part of the show is. Um, even if I don't read your survey out loud, there are so many surveys that I do read that touch me, that move me, and give me insight. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. And um, this is going to sound a little cheesy, but I'm grateful for uh, our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. They have helped keep the ship afloat this uh, this year uh, because they have... Uh, sponsored us every week of 2017 and uh, without the monthly donors and without their support uh, this podcast could not uh, could not survive and I'm grateful for that and it's um, I love betterhelp.com um, I've been using their counselor for years I share every every week on the podcast and you you cannot overestimate the importance of of having a weekly conversation with somebody who is knowledgeable about psychology, who can be objective, compassionate, who can be a grounding voice in your life, and who can help you feel heard and bring you back down to uh, to earth. Because I don't know about you guys, but if all I do is listen to the chatter in my head, uh, I'm I'm going to be somewhere around uh, the rings of Saturn after 
after about a week. So I'm grateful for, for their, their help. And if you want to check out online counseling, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. I'll put the links to anything I mention on the podcast uh, up on our show notes. Uh, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. And it's important that you put the slash mental, then they'll know you came from the ads here. Uh, fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you with a betterhelp.com counselor. And you can experience a free week of counseling to uh, see if it's right for you. You need to be over 18. And uh, I'm a big fan of it. But speaking of surveys, uh, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by Marvelous Mother. And uh, she writes, when I was 23, my mother gave me half a candle from Marshall's for my birthday. It was a small metal bucket painted peach with a scented candle melted inside, except she had already burned half of it already, and so there wasn't much left. It smelled nice, and I remember thanking her. For Christmas... I got a decorative shadow box frame with sailing knots on it, also from Marshalls. It still had the price on the back, $9.99. This seemed like a step up from the candle, and I remember thinking, eh, our relationship must be improving. Thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by, uh, oh no, did I just say that out loud? And uh, she writes, I was staying at my boyfriend's house in the midst of a UTI, I believe that stands for uh, urinary tract infection. Uh, when I get UTIs, it feels like all of a sudden I'm going to pee my pants with very little warning. On this particular night, we've been drinking quite a bit. I slept through the night, woke up early and needed to pee immediately. I stepped into my boyfriend's living room only to find that the only bathroom was occupied by his roommate taking a shower. I had to wait. So I sat on the floor of his bedroom, bladder quivering, in actual tears because the pain was so unbearable. Finally, I couldn't wait, so I grabbed a pint glass from the kitchen and started peeing. As the urine began inching towards the top of the glass, I realized I had two options. One, continue peeing and let the glass overflow onto the floor. Or two, try to stop urinating, waddle to the kitchen sink, empty my pint, and repeat. Somehow, I managed the latter and the deed was done, and as soon as I cleaned up all the evidence of the event and returned to my boyfriend's bed, I heard the roommate leave the bathroom. Thank you for sharing that. There is something so um, compelling about feeling the heat of your own pee. Like whenever I have to give a urine sample at the doctor's, there's something that feels, I'm always surprised by how warm pee feels. And, and I'm like, I forget how warm our body is, uh, inside, deep, deep inside our, uh, our bodies. And the other thing, when I, um, fill up the urine sample, I think it's really nice to, when you return it, to put just a slice of lemon on the edge of it. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. But that's how I like to do things. For those of you that have ever worn a wetsuit in the ocean, uh, there's also something kind of nice about peeing in the, in the wetsuit. Because that is, I didn't realize that that's what surfers do. Uh, and so the first time I did it, uh, I was like, felt it felt a little shameful but it felt really, uh, it was like you're making toast in your underwear. I want that on my headstone, by the way. 
this is from the uh, survey, uh, Memorable Vacation Arguments, and uh, Drew writes, uh, I remember one night with my husband. He starts a fight with me the first day of any vacation we go on. It's almost always very silly. This fight was about me not understanding him, like on a human level, not, quote, getting him. I said, what are you, 19? Of course I don't, quote, get you. Do you really think I think you get me? I went to art school. I don't want to be understood. Haven't you figured out by now? You're supposed to feel alone deep inside. We laughed about that one for a long time. Thank you for that, Drew. Um, and then this is an awful moment filled out by uh, I Want to Break Free. And she writes, uh, is it just me? Or is it fucked up that when I have a flashback to my mom fingering me, I end up getting high, masturbating compulsively to incest porn, and following it up with Jesus Camp on Netflix? I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach-clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> I'm here with Shane Moss, who's a podcaster, stand-up comic, uh, psychedelic. Uh, would enthusiast be too strong of a word? Uh, no, not at all. I consider myself a psychonaut. Um, where would be a good place to, to start with your story? One of the things we definitely want to talk about on the podcast uh, is your use of uh, psychedelics medicinally. Yeah. Uh, um, that's pretty much the only reason why I use them. And not, not, uh, sometimes I go and, uh, I mean, like last year I went to see David Gilmore live on some acid. Once in a while I get, um, uh, a few of my buddies together to go out in a cabin and whatnot. But that, I still consider that pretty therapeutic. But, uh, yeah, my, my use of psychedelics, um, although it didn't start that way, I had no idea. I was, uh, dumb reckless kid from wisconsin that was just exceptionally rebellious i had a uh i had a very wholesome sheltered upbringing that i didn't fit into in any way i was raised super religious and i didn't it was always very confusing to me i didn't mm -hmm. uh i didn't believe in any of that stuff and then it kind of made me feel like a like a crazy person i didn't know that there was like such a thing as an atheist or agnostic or anything like that and um and so i I was like, am I crazy or is the whole world crazy? I didn't, um, made me kind of, uh, and then, you know, as a teenager and teenagers are just kind of assholes anyway, for the most part, or at least I was, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just trying to blame that on teenagers in general. Um, I was just up for doing whatever. And I stumbled across, uh, psychedelics as, as one of the, 
doing whatever rebellious things and um i'm i'm very happy for that because i had uh i had i started getting chronic depression when i was about um 10 years old i i would say is when i didn't i didn't know what it was at the time yeah it was uh it was like really in between um going from elementary school to to middle school i remember just kind of uh, being exceptionally confused and and about deciding. anything about anything in particular like a lot of it was religious stuff a lot of it was with authority things um like really not understanding any my my parents and i never communicated very well they're like really really great nice wholesome people but not not big like yeah there's not a lot of like sharing of feelings and and that sort of thing a a lot of very midwestern like you talk about weather and and football and and that's about it and um i just remember kind of just checking out of just life in general and um and just really i never paid attention in school after that time i never Mm. listened to anything that any kind of authority figure had to tell me um yeah and i i so uh, and a lot of it was, you know, as a as a young man, was just like I I kind of uh, grew up like a lot of my, uh, especially one of my longer uh, oldest friends was like a real like macho man like mm-hmm. kind of uh, person who who uh, so unfortunately I would sometimes try to emulate a little bit of that, which is uh, I mean, embarrassing looking back at it. It's like not at all who I am. If we're so desperate to find something we can hang our hat on, (laughs) you know, what what do I, how does the world perceive me? What's the best way I can authentically, you know, fit in or stand out in a good way? Yeah, and I had, uh, I mean, it... And this is something that still is an insecurity of mine. Although I, I often, I often feel bad for even being an insecurity because I mm-hmm. feel quite fortunate um, that this is like a big insecurity of mine, which is that I've always been just like exceptionally skinny my whole life. And when, uh, when I was younger, that was especially when there's a lot of value on like being the toughest guy around and blah blah blah. Um, that was something that, uh, like I, I didn't think any girl was ever going to like me <laughs> like all this, <laughs> all this ridiculous stuff, which so many people had it so much worse than I did, yeah. you know, and especially now it's like uh, being someone that can eat whatever they want and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and you're like, tall too. Yeah. How, how tall are you? Almost six, four. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that was just like a kind of a big part of, uh, of my upright. It wasn't, you know, there was no, there, there was no like physical abuse or anything like that. There's, there's a million people that have it, uh, you know, I, I, there's always food on the table and, and that sort of thing. So, uh, but, it, but it, yeah, go ahead. Uh, but, um, when I, just re- relating to psychedelics when I did when I did psychedelics for the first time I, I think I don't quite remember it but I was like well that was fun and then I kept on doing them and then after a while it uh, I think it really emboldened my sense of empathy and really helped me kind of reflect on myself and see myself a little more objectively and I mean I don't know um, what my life would have been like had uh, had I not gone down that path um, but I uh, 
I I feel like I was definitely on track to be like a real fratty kind of douchey. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, I mean, there's a lot of like racism and stuff in my upbringing and it's, uh, and, and like, I, you know, it was, that's, that was just what the environment was like. Anyone that you talk to, there was like one black kid at my, in my high school and uh, well, maybe, maybe three. I just remember him in particular cause he had the worst time. And then, uh, and where in Wisconsin was it? Did you um, say outside of uh, the city called Lacrosse, Wisconsin? It's on the oh, border yeah. of Minnesota and Iowa. I know Lacrosse. I drank the beer Lacrosse. Oh yeah, yeah a lot of drinking yeah. there. Yeah. What were the big breweries in Lacrosse? Well, there's it, it keeps on changing, but it was um, it was old style. Oh, um, the worst beer had, ever. Yeah, yeah. They still don't make good beer. Uh, it's it's now some other. I think it's called Lacrosse Lager, um, but they have the world's biggest six pack, which is a brewery shaped <laughs> like a six pack. Um, quite proud of their drinking. Used to have most bars per capita in the entire United States, and um, and alcohol's been kind of a thing that I, alcohol took me a long time before I liked it. I liked um, marijuana and psychedelics, and which never created any issues in my life. Um, and then later on, like college years, like around 1920s, when I finally started getting a taste for alcohol, which I wish hadn't happened, um, because in, in nothing else, everything else that I was doing wasn't, wasn't like a detriment to my mm-hmm. life and psychedelics in particular, which were just something that I do like once every three months or something, or something that I, I felt were really very therapeutic as someone who who would have never been open-minded enough to to like go to therapy or anything mm-hmm. like that or or meditate or uh, you know and things, those are things, things like you, that those are things crazy. you do now i don't go to therapy i have um i meditate regularly and mm-hmm. uh and even things like um i i haven't been doing as much yoga as i like to but that i think that really helps my mental health a lot um and and those are those are all things that like were for sissies you know in in my upbringing so something that you know Mm. it was very like pull up your bootstraps kind of stuff i i really hid my um depression from everybody i mean my my good friends probably i mean i was just kind of i would just say like a lot of outrageous um things all the time just kind of lashing out and angry about the world cynical yeah that becomes kind of the first the the first uniform of the depressed seems to be cynicism yeah 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 exceptionally exceptionally cynical and um you know i i i think that uh there there was periods of my time a time in my life where where i was kind of uh one, one of the things on my on my um podcast that i would love to get into more about I, I go around talking with scientists i've kind of been waiting for this one guy in particular to come on it hasn't worked out but this idea of learned helplessness um which is where uh are, are you familiar with this by chance i've uh, i've read about it and i read uh a book about it in particular uh the name of which escapes me but this guy uh had gone had spent a lot of time in Africa in the 60s and then you know maybe 10 years ago went from Egypt to 
uh, the chip, the Horn of Africa, or not the Horn, the, uh, um, what's the Cape, uh, am I blanking? Cape, Cape Town? Cape Town. Yeah. And did it, said, I'm not going to take any airplanes, I'm going to do it on foot, hitch rides, because I'm going to get to know the people and see how it's changed. And one of the things he talked about, the biggest difference he saw was he said that aid has taught people that they can't do it themselves. He used to be pro-aid, yeah. and, and now he saw, you know, put the corruption and the other shit aside. Right, right, he right. said it, it, he, I don't know if he used the term learned helplessness, but there was just like almost uh it changed the way people thought about themselves mm. uh, so that was kind of an interesting read to me i don't know if i have a particular opinion because i don't feel like i'm well informed enough to form one but uh but go ahead well i, I mean kind of the a very simplified way of of my kind of understanding of it is is uh that they'll they'll do a test like they'll take a they'll take a rat in a cage and, and they'll have uh, a few different conditions um one is that the rat will get shocked and then it can like hit a lever to to stop the shocking um uh another one is um is that oh it's it, you can It'll turn a light on to warn it, and then it can hit a lever to stop it, right? And then other, otherwise, there's no light. It shocks it, and then it can hit the lever to stop it. Otherwise, a light will come on, and there's nothing it can do to stop it, but at least it can brace itself. And then another condition is there's no warning. There's no control. It just shocks you randomly once in a while. And, um, and so, so the, um, two main components of of stress are uh um the inability to make predictions and then the inability to have control um so that's kind of what it's measuring in a very simplified uh way and so so at least you know when this light comes on sure there's nothing you can do about it but at least you can brace yourself you know mm -hmm. that it's coming and so they just experience far less stress the ones that just get shocked randomly there's nothing they can do about it. They can then go and try to put them in a different condition where they give them rewards or shocks or whatever it might be and stuff that any other uh, rat would pick up in no time at all. They just can't learn because they do, they're not even looking to learn. They're not looking for any patterns. They're they, just surviving. And they basically learned that life is just full of these unpredictable shocks and there's nothing you can do about it and why bother even trying and looking for well, opportunities. I, I wonder if that's why CBT is so important for some people because you're kind of retraining the brain to get out of the amygdala and kind of into uh, the, uh, the, the conscious part. What's CBT part. stand for again? Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, right, 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 right. And EMDR is also something that routes trauma from uh, it, it, the the caveman uh, f uh, fight or flight is yeah, the, the, amygdala. In the amygdala right and uh, EMDR also does a way of routing trauma which has been stored mm -hmm. in that into the uh, I think it's the prefrontal cortex, cortex. Yeah, yeah which uh, has executive functions and can rationally say I'm, yes yeah. uh, I am I am not just because I'm late for work my life isn't on the line yeah it comes up with a lot of this fancier language stuff too and a lot of these more thoughtful things so if you can that, that's that's why um, they use MDMA for 
for PTSD treatment. That's uh, this organization, mm-hmm. the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies that sponsors my tour. That's that's their main thing right now. And that's exactly what it does. It shuts, it limits blood flow to the amygdala because people with PTSD have an overactive uh, amygdala, overly sensitive amygdala that gets triggered very easily. And then, and then, uh, and then people freak out and have to have to repress whatever, whatever that memory is. They're not, they're not processing it. And when you don't process something that gets stronger and stronger, trying to, trying to repress those things just simply does not work. And, but then it gives you something to, uh, project on Facebook on some, onto somebody else, which is, <laughs> exactly. which is always nice. <laughs> Unleash your childhood I've, fury on an unsuspecting person. I've done a little bit of that. Yeah. I, I think, I, I think I, we I all think have. That's what Facebook yeah. is there for. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, MDMA, um, increases blood flow to the prefrontal And, and you're talking about so. the drug MDMA? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is yeah. otherwise known as like ecstasy or, or okay. rolls or whatever, okay. which is, I, I would uh, I would very much love to see um, things like that getting out of like the idea of hey let's do this stuff and go to a rave mm-hmm. and I would like to see it back in clinical settings which the, which is where it started it was it was used for therapy uh, and and originally. would uh, the using of ketamine also kind of fall into that family of uh, using something to, I know for- very little about ketamine from what I understand there's a lot of great research with ketamine in depression and I've never done ketamine I haven't uh, I haven't looked into it um, much but uh, yeah that's my understanding that Okay. that it's it's good for uh depression for me for me mushrooms have definitely been the biggest thing for depression mdma i i don't really it, that stuff feels almost too good for my liking like i just don't trust anything that yeah. that feels that good yeah. uh great for someone that is uh you know has ptsd and can finally like address some of these issues mm-hmm. in uh in a less terrified and in kind of a loving way and kind of able to forgive themselves and others and, and that sort of thing i, I don't have any um, so it's not meant PTSD. it's not meant as a long-term treatment for depression it's more just used no. as kind of a a way to safely allow somebody to process some process something that's yeah been, yeah it's just had about to be buried it out okay yeah. this is like the the difference between two people in the in the same um, foxhole or whatever situation one guy has ptsd the other one doesn't and, and generally there's all sorts of individual differences but just general broadly speaking um usually the difference is the one person went home shared his story wrote about it blah blah, blah got it out the other guy was for whatever reason whether they're scared to talk about it or whether they thought it was disrespectful to the people that may have lost their lives or whatever to complain about this thing or you know just mm-hmm. to uh, we're uh you know in this kind of tough guy sort of environment like i feel like i'm kind of familiar with um and those those are the ones affected by pts the ones that don't address it the ones that don't get it out and so yeah their studies are just uh it's actually just three treatments of mdma uh, a Mm. month apart and then uh they also have follow-up therapy visits and 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 then a year later they check back in with them and and two-thirds of the people no longer have ptsd and so while they're under the effect of it, they talk about the trauma. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's okay. uh, it's a long like eight hour therapy session, and then there's uh, there's other aspects of this too. I mean, part of it is just getting 
an eight hour therapy session can be really beneficial for, for a lot of people. But you're probably going to want to be on some sort of drug if you're going to be in therapy for eight hours straight. So, so you know, a lot of this, uh, I mean, they also have a placebo and, and people in the same placebo condition are also um, show diminished symptoms um, be- just because they're actually getting, you know, good legitimate therapy and, and for these longer um, uh treatments and periods mm-hmm. of time and and everything else so it's, it's not just this isn't just about drugs but the drug does allow for it, it just kind of uh uh eases some of yeah. some of the um uh, a trauma so, lubricant yes yes exactly <laughs> it just eases up on you a little bit those uh that amygdala can uh mess with a lot of people oh my god yeah and um I was going to say something else about uh, trauma or medicines. Um, I can't remember what it was, but um, a game changer for me, uh, because I've taken meds for 15 years, and it's always been futzing with this, taking one in, you know, screwing around with the dosage, you know, as prescribed by my yeah. uh, psychiatrist. And the game changer for me was Adderall, which... Really? Uh, oh, absolute game changer. I'd never known... I knew it, it was used for ADHD, but I didn't realize it could be used for treatment-resistant depression, which is what my psychiatrist says I have. And, uh, yeah, it's... It's interesting. I Well, I've, I mean, I've done a little bit of Adderall, um, and... Certainly, in my experience, there's a little bit of euphoria that that uh, that comes along. It was uh, for the it. for the first maybe month there was, and and I had been told by somebody who had also done. And I'm a recovering addict, so yeah. that's why I was hesitant to do it. But this yeah. person who was also sober said, um, "Don't listen to your addict because it's going to want you." to bump up your dosage mm. um but it will just there's always just a little bit of a of a fall off so mm. if you just are prepared for that just know that some of that uh euphoria will go away and but what will be left in its place is a baseline vitality and that's what i found and i have no desire to do uh more than prescribed and uh, many Days or nights, I forget to take one and uh, and don't. Uh, so mm. it's been it's opened my mind. I guess my point is it's opened my mind to what I thought was you know quote unquote valid medicine for yeah. for an issue. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's opening my mind. You telling me that because that stuff makes me nervous uh, yeah. as well. As someone who um, I'm, I'm quite certain I have uh, ADHD. I, I've mm-hmm. never. I've never been diagnosed professionally, although I, I dated a therapist for a while. She, <laughs> so that was like, that was, she, she ran a few kind of diagnostics. <laughs> and that's what led to the breakup. <laughs> um, Shane, but, I'm just crunching your numbers and uh, I need my space. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, I really, uh, I sort of really love my ADHD for, for many creative ways. And then it causes a lot of problems with me just not being able to get um, just very fundamental uh, things done that, that just need to be done. You know, uh, taking care of just like 
bills and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. that just like paperwork kind of stuff. That's super easy. That'll just put off for months. Oh, yeah. Months. I used to joke that my mail had snow on top of it. You know, <laughs> yeah. It just gets so high. I know. Yeah. Mine, too. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, uh, I had an Adderall not too long ago, and I felt like, and it was, it was, I took it because I, I um, had a very long drive over uh, overnight, and um, I, I had to fly out at like seven in the morning or something. I had a four hour drive to get there. And, uh, and, but I had gone through, um, one of the first major bouts of depression, um, that I'd had in, in close to a year, which, uh, it was amazing. Like a year ago, my, my depression, which I was just used to having like almost every day, not, not just, not completely debilitating. I like, can't get out of bed every day. Uh, although those would come, uh, pretty regularly. Um, but it just, it just went away. The, the, uh, the color gets sucked out of the world, that kind of depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and which I actually attribute to, uh, mushrooms and DMT, but also just because it, I, I'm not sure it was that. It could have been a coincidence. I was just happened to be doing more of those at that time. But um, but it also just kind of like I figured a lot of things out at the same time. Um, I and I kind of got my career on track and kind of put together this, uh, this like pretty successful tour that I'm on and everything else. And so it could be that as well. Um, I mean that, that's that's been a big thing for me is just. Uh, the first time I kind of heard about some of that learned helplessness research was just like, Oh, that's me. I'm, I'm just, I've given up. I'm not looking, I'm not seeing that there are possible opportunities. I have it in my head that their life is full of shocks and there's nothing you can do about it. And what's the point? I think that's where spirituality really helps. And I don't mean organized religion, but I mean the belief in a cause greater than your own pleasure. Um, meaning, uh, seeking meaning and purpose and connection to other human beings. That for me has, uh, while it, it doesn't completely, uh, erase the notion that there's a lot of chaos and unfairness, uh, and pain in the world, it gives me something to focus on so that I'm not debilitated mm-hmm. by the darkness in the world yeah absolutely i mean every time every time i feel like uh i'm i'm helping someone or helping i mean i'm i think uh i i get a big sense of that from my podcast i feel uh at least the story that i like to tell myself is that i'm i'm helping kind of inform people much like you're mm-hmm. sharing in and allowing other people to share their experiences i'm kind of uh, trying to do that from a scientific take on things and trying to get information to people that are you know a lot of my listeners are like factory workers and truck drivers that just have a lot of time on their hands that are plenty smart but just have never heard of some of these ideas before Mm -hmm. and uh and i i have those people reach out to me all the time that tell me that you know it helped this and that and and podcasting i think uh Decades from now, people will look back at podcasting and see what a watershed medium it was in connecting people, especially through ideas and and experience. Absolutely. It's so intimate. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, Shane's podcast is called Here We Are, and uh, it covers, there's like, what, 114 episodes? Something like that. that. And uh, the variety of topics that it covers is uh, really vast and uh, a beautiful blend of... uh, It's a lot of life science kind of stuff. Yeah, science, art, and uh, philosophy, spirituality, self-discovery, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All this stuff they make fun of you you for in your hometown. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) You should have called the podcast, This Is Not My Hometown. (laughs) Well, you know, I actually kind of, part part of me... kind of getting over a lot of that angst and everything, which I still had when I was, um, even into my late twenties. Um, I think I started breaking free of it, but by kind of the end of my, um, twenties was especially in my early thirties when I started learning more and more about say evolutionary psychology and biology, I was always, um, I realized just how complicated this stuff was. And it's like, I always took it for granted. Like, Oh, I know. Yeah. I believe in evolution and, and you know, people are stupid if they don't. And then I, I realized I don't know a thing about evolution. I just <laughs> believed in it just because, you know, because I, and it's actually incredibly difficult to understand some of the intricacies of it. And then I, and I also realized how interesting and, and fascinating it was. And, and part of, part of my approach was, I wonder if I could put this in a way so people back in my hometown that would be able to understand this stuff. Mm -hmm. Some of my friends, some of my family that would normally be kind of close-minded about this stuff if they listened to it, if they would be able to understand. And so, and and that was part of kind of a a freeing thing for me that helped get uh, get rid of a lot of anger. There's been no like when I say that I. Um, psychedelics have helped this or helped that like uh, they certainly weren't a magic bullet uh, uh, like there's there's been a million things that I've that have helped me there's been a million things that have gotten in my way uh, mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. along this road and I mean alcohol has been uh, one that uh, I've struggled with um, here and there had a few years off for a while got back into it and and most of the time just fine and then sometimes just a, a, a bit uh um a bit out of control a little bit embarrassing and more importantly just like such a time suck and just such a uh a fogginess you know where i'm just like i'm i'm smarter than this and that, not even when i'm drinking just like sitting around during the day like well i know i'm smarter than like why isn't my brain working right now um, and so there, there's been, there's been a million things to have to, so I, so I definitely, and, and when I, uh, I mean, I, I say this over and over again and my, sh- my show is not about like, Hey, everyone get out there and, and do psychedelics. I mean, like the last, the last thing, um, I would say for most people is, is to, Hey, you should give Adderall a try mm-hmm. willy nilly, you know, yeah. <laughs> like everyone in the world should try Adderall, but if that's something that worked for you and for your individual needs. And I um, tried just about everything before right. I got that. And, and and I often believe that meds should be the last house on the block. That you should try therapy, yeah. meditation, exercise, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Uh, 
you know, finding people to connect with, uh, being vulnerable, learning to be honest, learning to recognize who's safe to open up to and, and who isn't, and on and on and on and on. Yeah. Um, I mean, also stand-up helped a lot. Just just that it forced me to journal, I think, helped get a lot of uh, stuff out, helped. I, I think kind of... Um, when this is all part of mindfulness you know when when uh which i've only been meditating for like four years now but but uh i i realize now looking back so so much of of what had helped me was just learning mindfulness in these kind of indirect ways once once you're able to kind of it's one thing to feel something but once you're able to kind of articulate it and understand it a little more specifically um, then you can one recognize it for what it is two figure out what to do with that information if you need to do anything um, and and uh, address it you know how even even positive things you know I, I don't I don't think it's it's just about like uh, I mean I think another big thing was was I was so focused on on my depression and and so um so kind of blind to so many of the good things and and through some of these this journaling and everything journaling about some of the good things and understanding some of those a little clearer and kind of how to feel that way a little more often and and knowing what worked and what didn't I mean I remember a big uh I always wanted to, I wanted to be a stand up since I was like 10 years old and and I remember when Comedy Central came around I'd watch every stand up there was on Comedy Central I you know once DVR was around especially I would record every stand possible uh and and my my big dream was you know if I just got a Comedy Central presents a 30 minute special man that would that would just be great. That's all that I had ever need, and and uh, and I got one, and uh, and it went great, and it was fantastic. And I remember after the taping, um, you know, going to this bar afterwards with that rented out and family and friends, and you know, it was this big exciting night. And I just remember sitting there being like, "Oh, is well, this it? Yeah. Well, now now what do I do?" And and so there, there's so many things like that 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 helped me understand things like that I didn't know until, especially until I got more into science um, about the act of kind of focusing on the process rather than these uh, kind of external uh, mm-hmm. goals, um, more of the intrinsic uh, rewards. And which would fall under the, the category of mindfulness, uh, i.e. I- just staying in the present moment, not dwelling on the past, not obsessing about the future. Absolutely. And, and, and you also like I sometimes I go back and forth with some of that stuff, too. And it's just like, uh, you know, they're like, be here now. Kind of like I get I get it. But it's hard. Yeah, I mean, you know how much planning went into writing a book called Be Here Now? You know, you still yeah. it, it's it's definitely really about uh balance in in my way of thinking but it's it's still i mean i hate how much i beat myself up for past stuff but some of those memories are also about learning and making sure you don't make the same mistakes uh i i hate that i worry about the future but 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 part of worrying about the future makes it possible for me to plan new shows and put together new ideas and i think there's a big difference too between having goals 
and planning for the future and obsessing about the yeah. things that you have little or no control oh, over. That absolutely. is the stuff that's a, that's a waste of, of time. Um, and by the way, I did a, a Comedy Central uh, Presents and the audience hated me. <laughs> and I was up in my hotel room afterwards and I was watching uh the movie adaptation and there was a line in it that i felt like was the the universe putting its arm around me yeah there was a line that said who you are is not and i'm paraphrasing who you are is not uh who loves you who you are is what you love Mm -hmm. and i thought yes it's what i the energy i put out not how much energy i get yeah and, yeah and that that really really helped me um but fuck you for having a good set <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, uh, there was one other thing that we were uh i wanted to touch on you know what i'd, I'd like to oh i know what it was the you talked about the the environment that you were raised in as a kid where emotions just weren't discussed. Uh, I had a guest on the podcast, uh, Dr. Janice Webb, and she has a book called Running on Empty, and she talks about the effects of uh, emotional neglect on children. You know, well-meaning parents but themselves, it, communication, emotional communication was not modeled for them. So right. certainly out of no malice, but to no. the child, there is still a kind of, uh, it's you're missing a baseline feeling of safety in the world because it just, there's a void. And it it's a book that, it, since you're such a knowledge seeker, I would be interested to know what you uh, think of of her book, and the second thing is, I want to, if you can remember some, give me some moments from childhood that kind of highlight that feeling of um, it being kind of emotional poverty, if you will. Yeah, I I kind of I just remember it started really really early on. I mean, I remember. Once I was four or five, even when you when you start, uh, it, I mean, I just don't remember being three that that well. But uh, but I just kind of remember ish that age of of you know annoying your parents with why 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 mm-hmm. all of the time, and uh, and I just got a, so much uh, because I said it so sort of thing, and and then asking bigger questions about. And just like, well, because God said this, you know, and, and there was never, there was never like a satisfactory kind of rationale behind it. I, I was, math was the only thing that ever really clicked with me. Um, I loved math and I didn't, I didn't have to pay too much attention to be like the mm-hmm. top of my class in, in math and everything or, or up there. Um, and, uh, and I, I think my, my brain is just a little more kind of analytical and I just never got satisfying answers. Answers. I felt like I felt like I learned really early on, um, and I I wish maybe a specific example will will come to me. But I I just remember this feeling of first not getting satisfying 
answers, nothing that would really make sense to me. And then starting to have this feeling that these are like questions you're not even really supposed to be asking, you know, like these are kind of inappropriate, um, questions like, like, uh, I, I remember, you, you know, when, when you're young and you, you like start toying around with like swearing or, or talking about your balls or something like that for the first time when you're a little, you know, seven year old or whatever, and kind of being scolded by, by your parents. I, I remember having that same feeling just asking about, you know, what happens when you die or, or, you know, what, what, what does life mean? And, and it's, uh, it's interesting what a instinct that is too to search for that because I mean five year olds aren't saying anything terribly sophisticated yeah you know that's not there, there's not any huge big philosophies coming out of too many five year olds that you know everyone's taking note of and uh, but but somehow they're still they're still coming up with like what happens when you die and you know what what's the meaning of life kind of stuff I think it's just so instinctual um it's just something that we're born with i in my my way of thinking is that it's kind of this evolved um uh goal assessing and um uh software that that um kind of is constantly looking around at the environment and figuring out kind of oh what's what's the direction mm -hmm. and and the idea that there is a singular uh, direction is rather than a thing that you're going towards the idea of it that you're searching is more a thing that's kind of poking you in the butt in in like kind of an arbitrary direction i don't even mean that in a in a negative way i mean that in a um in a, uh, you know, you just kind of got to stay I moving. Think, I think that's the evolutionary purpose of fear. Yeah. And, and I think fear kept us alive, but I think it, not the degree to which we now still have that residual muscle in our, and obviously, you know, it's, I don't mean a literal muscle, but uh, it's, I think our worry served us when we were living in a cave or maybe even medieval times. But I feel like now um, maybe that part of the brain is working against us a lot of times. This is I, called the negativity bias. This is I, my last album, My Big Break, about breaking my feet was actually, um, it was uh, meant to be a special about negative emotions and why we experience them and and how they evolved and then i broke my feet which fit very well into the premise um wow. and so it ended up becoming an album about breaking my feet but i was already doing most of the material oh, before it, that happened and uh I'm but yeah that's justice. that's that's called the uh negativity bias and the idea is is that there's a there's a uh, higher this came out of uh, uh, engineering. Uh, so you, when you build a smoke alarm, you have to assume that you can't make a perfect smoke alarm, um, that it's going to be susceptible to errors. It can err in two ways. It can either not go off. Um, it can either go off when, when you know, uh, the pizza's burnt or whatever, and that's annoying, and that's a cost. Um, and Or it can not go off when there's a real fire and then people die and that's a tremendous cost, a much heavier cost. And so they intentionally bias smoke alarms 
to make them far more susceptible to. So now it does, yes, it does go off a lot more often when you're just burnt some toast or whatever, but um, at least we know for sure it's going to go off when there is a fire and our, our brains have kind of evolved to be in that same way. Now we live in a modern environment where we don't have anywhere near the number of threats. Uh, that Although I guess it depends on where you live. It depends on where you live, but it's also humans have evolved this unique capacity for um, forethought and, and we, we don't know if we're able to reflect further back in time than... Uh, every other mammal, I would think that would be the case. Um, but, but we can, we can now, rather than being something that's vigilant for uh, a predator in the environment that might attack us. Now we're worried about our 401ks and Mm -hmm. even what's going to happen after we die. That's how far into the future we can, we can think. And that's, uh, which is the opposite of presence, which we were just talking about is the opposite of mindful mindfulness. Yeah. It's like when, when we're our, our fear, um, when used in the moment about what is right in front of us is a tremendously good thing you know we get hyper focused i i I guess it it, we're assuming that we're not panicking about uh about something and um anyway i forget that little uh side branch i I went off on uh well i mean like say you're tripping or something like that all of a sudden your reflexes can take over and zero in and straighten you out yes Uh, (laughs) uh go ahead but but that's not always i mean that's that's not always necessary in when you're not tripping or in danger. Well, you know, it's interesting. We, we have a, a survey on the website called The Struggle in a Sentence, and people uh, describe various issues. Try to They try to put it into one sentence, for instance, depression or anxiety. And the one I see over and over that people describe anxiety is when you're tipping back in a chair and you start to go too far back, it's like that. Or you're slipping on the ice. And, and it so it really is like that fear part of the brain thinking... This is, I'm going to, I'm going to get hurt. Going back to your uh, parents, it, it would be fair to say that they were not uh, contemplative people. They were kind of... Um, I, I, think, I think that my mom was not a terribly contemplative person. I think that my dad kind of was, but kind of kept all of that hidden from everybody. I, I think that I was very... Now, as an adult, looking back, I think that my dad just kind of went through similar things and just mm-hmm. learned to kind of keep to himself and, you know, keep your head down and don't mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and kind of don't talk. I mean, this is I, I feel like a big part of the mm-hmm. environment. And I mean, my my dad now as an adult tells me all the time, like how how much he has to just bite his tongue around in a lot of the people in, in uh, uh, <laughs> that area yeah. uh, still to this day. And I, I think that uh, I was doing a lot of it. So, so I think that, you know, he was just a guy that was just like, well, do what your mother says or whatever. And just spent time working 90 hours a week or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he was good. You know, he'd play catch with me and I'd do all of that. And, uh, <laughs> but, but it was just, uh, I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think my dad at the time knew uh, knew how to share. I mean, I I still don't think we're the best at it, but um, but definitely me becoming a comedian 
I think was a very, very good thing for my family as a whole. It opened everybody up a little bit as, as hard as it was for my mother to hear me talking about vaginas on late night or you know whatever it might be it ultimately kind of loosened everybody up and we, we definitely have uh now in my adult life and maybe that would have been the case no matter what but uh I definitely um have much much more um interesting and kind of meaningful conversations now oh, that's and, great um i mean certainly not uh fully open um it sounds at all, like but but uh, the, yeah. the guards are coming down yeah it bit. sounds like you're you're uh what's the phrase meeting them where they are yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely uh what are some of the greatest hits of uh negative self-talk for you for me oh i have a lot of uh like i have this odd like form of Tourette's that, that it's not really Tourette. I don't know what it, like, it's weird because sometimes I'm, I'm just really good at masking it, but I'll just, all of a sudden I'll just have this flash of some memory from like five years ago from me doing something stupid or saying something like slightly embarrassing that probably no one else even noticed, you know? And, and I'm just like, fuck. And, the, and usually people like turn and look at me. I'm like, oh, I forgot. I have to go and I have to run to the store. I forgot to run. I always like make up <laughs> something. And then uh, and then I'll sometimes do that with like I'll just like, it, you, you know what it is. And this is gonna sound so creepy when I say it, or maybe not. I I think it's just old habits of mine that I don't really. Uh, I I think a lot of my what depression I do and and really I have. I'm so much better. Um, but when I, when I do feel depression these days, um, either it's, I kind of know exactly what it is where it's like, I'm in a little bit of a transitional period and it's, I'm so not, it's situational, not biochemical. Necessarily. Exactly. Which is a, a really, really big change because I do th I think it was chemical for a very, very long time. And I don't know what happened. Um, but I think it's definitely situational now where I can absolutely identify what's causing it. Whereas before that was never the case. Maybe it was just a lack of mindfulness. Um, but, but the situation is usually like, okay, I'm wrapping up this show or, you know, finished with this project kind of like mm -hmm. after you'd finished the comedy central presents. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. Now what, you know, right. I checked that off and now you got to think of a new direction to head. Um, yeah. that, that will, which I don't mind so much because I'm like, this is functional. This is making me sit back and be contemplate, uh, contemplative and I'm getting in my head, you know, and I know at the end of this, I'm going to sort out some, I'm going to come to some conclusion and I'm going to have some new direction. But then some of it is just out of nowhere, a, a little more chemical, which doesn't happen very often anymore. And that I just think is just old habits of just having every day been you know, old wiring multiple man. suicidal thoughts and things like that where it just doesn't uh it doesn't even really make sense anymore and then when you say suicidal thoughts as a way to soothe yourself that there is an exit door or in a i am really close to actually wanting to do this um i've had i i can't tell what it was early on 
I just when remember, did they first start? When did they? I remember a family friend killed himself when we were younger, and I just remember being like, oh, I get it. You know, and like when Kurt Cobain, it was like Nirvana is my first love when he killed himself. I was like, yeah, like I understand Like mm-hmm. this, this world is, is pretty miserable. And, and, uh, that's not necessarily what I, although, um, some people have made the argument, some, some, uh, scientists have made the argument that depressed people are seeing the world more clearly, uh, and that everyone else is seeing it. Happy overly. people just aren't paying attention. <laughs> right. Seeing it a little too rose colored, but you know, um, we all, and, and there's, there's pretty well studied, uh, self-deception that, that we've evolved. But I would say that, um, some of it was beneficial, which was like, Okay, I'll take this big chance. I'll go and try to live a, a, a dream of mine. And if it doesn't work out, I'll always have this way out as like a way of moving forward. And then some of it just like there is no point to this. I don't know which one I had more of early on. It definitely it's the latter now uh, of, of the uh, or, or, or the uh, the former, p- p- the former, the plan B, yeah. um, when I experience it, I don't, I mean, I can handle a suicidal thought or two from, from time to time. It doesn't really bother me that much. And, and I also think that, uh, it's just when it was persistent, when it was every day, multiple times a day, that's when it was, that was, it was kind of unbearable and just trying to shut down as much as possible and ignore that. Um, now it's, now it's kind of, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about it. I, I think that, uh, I think that when you can, I think the closer that you can kind of come to, I've, I've always had these rock bottom kind of points and moments of just, uh, wanting to die and, and, or, or with alcohol or with financial difficulties or whatever it might be. Um, or of just like not being able to produce anything or be productive for like two months at a time or something. Um, and I, I feel like I've always come away with those with some of the most interesting and thoughtful and creative ideas that I've ever had. Um, I mean, fortunately I live, I have a creative occupation so I can make use of them. But I think that there are, I think that there's a part of the brain when you get to, when, when nothing matters, when nothing, when really nothing matters, because we're all tied into these ideas of meaning. And once all of those kind of dissolve, I think that your brain can make new associations oh. that simply weren't possible. And often before. are so simple and elegant. Yeah. And they're. Yeah. It's it's like the ultimate garage sale for your brain and your soul. Yeah, absolutely. So and what I the think, fuck have I been lugging this around for? I know. And I think that's, I think that, I mean, that's why now I don't, I just kind of experience it, you know? I'm like, well, you know, you know what you're going through right now. And you know that at the end of this, you're going to come up with, you know, so one of the, the best pieces of material you've come up with in a year, or you're going to think of a new podcast project or book project or, you know, what, whatever like new thing that's going to motivate you and drive you forward. And you're going to get excited about it. I mean, I, I sometimes do feel like maybe I'm toward the side of like, uh, a, a little bit manic depressive, but, but also I think all these things are like, you know, rather arbitrary labels sometimes too. And how much is it, you, you know, it, does 
how much should we be categorizing these things, you know, and, and how much do you want to let things like that define you? Um, so these are all things that I kind of go back and forth uh, with too, but, but, but the, the main point, the, something that I think has been the most beneficial was, was just kind of learning and appreciation for, for some of these negative, like, I mean, no one wants to experience pain, but if you didn't, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't have your, um, it, it uh, ring when you, when you yeah, hit, no, hit the no table, problem. it reverberates through the, uh, <laughs> no, no problem. Anyway. I, I was, uh, I was going to say like, if your hands on a stove top, yeah. uh, that's not going to feel good. That's not a positive <laughs> feeling or emotion, mm-hmm. but you're going to get your hand off of that burning thing. And, and so learning which ones are functional and which ones are just like this negativity bias, worrying about a bunch of stuff you have no control over. And I, in my opinion, I think that, um, sometimes, uh, be, because we've, we've evolved for X number of threats and there's now X, uh, times a half, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> number of threats. So our brains kind of, uh, wired to perceive a certain number and that's not happening. And so we're just kind of creating, I think it's almost like a psychological allergy, mm-hmm. um, to where now we're kind of creating, um, imagined problems or making far too much out of, uh, actual problems that aren't anywhere near as big as they seem. I, I think just about everybody's and, and especially addicts, I think just about everybody's crystal ball is broken and the biggest waste of time that I've experienced in my life is trying to predict how the future is going to unfold and then basing my present mood on that picture that I've created in my mind. And it occurred to me one day that nothing degrades the quality of my life like obsessing about the quality of my life. Yeah, yeah. It, it takes me out of the present moment and... It, I become useless to other people. I become useless to myself. I become sullen and either grandiose or self-pitying, which are certainly not places that I, I want to be in yeah. either one. And it's, it's those moments when I realize what I can let go of, like you were talking about, that I experience real freedom. And when I began to let go of the idea of um, my career is going to is supposed to look a certain way you know i'm supposed to want to continue to be on tv when i realized i don't really like being on tv (laughs) anymore i know and i was able to let that go i've had Uh, moments like that yeah. yeah it was so freeing it was so freeing but i had to let go of that template that society had kind of um brainwashed me into mm-hmm. into believing and that to me is the real work that has allowed me to access if not happiness peace peace to me is totally doable happiness eh. it's a bit of a hedonic treadmill and yeah. <laughs> you know we're a bit of kind of bottomless pits of want and yeah. you're you're never really going to fill that yeah. but yeah peace is is something it's doable that's, because yeah. very often for me, peace is just letting go right. of just not having expectations. And I think a lot of times telling somebody 
don't have expectations that that's perceived in a weak way or in a you know you're you're not uh you know you're not doing enough but quite the opposite i i think it leaves you open to such beauty because if you're always comparing something to how you had hoped it would turn out you're missing what has actually been given to you maybe it's the most beautiful gift in ugly wrapping paper i've experienced a lot of those what seemed like setbacks at the time that in hindsight were beautiful beautiful gifts but i had to let go of what i thought the future needs to look like to be able to see the beauty in those you know uh discovering that uh i am a, a alcoholic and drug addict at first was like fuck god damn it this sucks and then I had to learn all these tools to just stay alive that I now have to 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 break out in other situations. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad that I was, quote, cursed with addiction. Yeah, yeah. I uh, it's I, I went through things like that with, you know, breaking my feet and things like that and alcohol before, which I'm actually trying to. Uh, I, I'm taking a break again. Um, I, I have a hard time saying I'm going to quit drinking forever. Uh, but, uh, at least right now. Um, but I'm definitely taking a break and hitting the reset button for a while, especially because I have so much work to do right now. Um, Give me, but, um, I'm sorry, finish your thought. Um, I was, uh, but yeah, like, like breaking my feet afterwards, I realized that, uh, that I was like, cause I jumped off this thing that was too high while I was hiking and, uh, you'll feel real dumb about that for a long time when you're like having to live in your parents' basement for three months cause you can't care for yourself and you can't get around and everything else. And and uh and then you need these complicated surgeries and blah 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 and just like why did you do that did you really need that adrenaline shot that much and uh and then i also but you know sometimes i i look back at it and i'm like you know what i'm a jumper like i just go for it in life i take huge swings i i swing for the fences sometimes and and I'm a little crazy sometimes, and uh, and I'm a little bit of a wild man once in a while, and uh, and you know what? I also have this amazing life where I'm on this amazing tour and meeting amazing people, and I have this awesome podcast. I get to go around talking to people I have no business talking to, and and um, you know I have a great girlfriend, and and family and everything else and and uh a lot of a lot of these great things in my life are just from taking tremendous risks and so uh you know finding ways to forgive yourself for shit so you don't have to constantly be looking back what the fuck you're such an idiot um and and kind of uh uh, reframing yes. some of those things is is definitely very important. I I have never beaten myself up into a better person. <laughs> I don't think anybody has ever beaten themselves up into a better person. You know, I, I mean, it's good to get reality checks once in a yes. while. Shame, a certain amount of shame is healthy, yeah, sure. but yeah, obsessively yeah, yeah. beating yourself up no, is so. And I think 
everyone does. Now, maybe not everyone. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some people that are just completely oblivious, too, I'm sure. But but I think it's enormous. I'd say 98% of the population beats themselves up I, way too much. Absolutely. And I think we do it because then we think, well, if I can just solve it myself, I don't have to ask for help. I don't have to bounce it off somebody else. I don't have to be vulnerable. Mm. And I don't have to... Um, possibly be uh, an audience to somebody saying something I don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, for me, that's that's how I, uh, that's my take on wanting to just sit and ruminate and, be, and, and beat myself up. Um, I, I mean, I think you're right that it is hard for, I mean, as you're saying that, just thinking of how many messages I get from people all the time that heard me talking or come up to me after shows or whatever, and they like, want to share their problems and want me to give them advice to fix them or whatever. I'm like, oh, man, it, it, because they don't feel like they have anyone that they can talk to. I always feel so bad. I'm like, oh, I'm not like I'm super happy that you have that much respect for me, but I'm not a therapist. And, you know, I, I'm I, I feel so bad that you aren't comfortable saying this to anyone but a complete stranger. And I think that is a lot of people I feel very, very isolated mm-hmm. and unable to uh, mm-hmm. share with anyone. I I don't know how to change that. I don't know how to start opening up. But I, I mean, I, I usually forward those emails to um, if it, if it's if they're asking my opinion on something, I'll give them my opinion. If they're asking for a solution, maybe I'll refer them to a book or an article on something, um, or a support group. As far as somebody wanting me to, you know, quote-unquote, fix them, yeah, I I have to say I'm... I'm not a therapist. This is above my pay grade. I'm, yeah, I'm a yeah. jackass that tells dick jokes. Yeah, but, yeah. but I think a lot of times people just want to be heard. I, I think so too. I mean, and, and it's not. I'm not saying it in like a negative way. No, I mean, that I fi- didn't I come across. It, I find it like flattering, incredibly um, flattering. But uh, but I also, I mean, that's also just like sometimes it's like, whoa, you're putting a little too much responsibility, on, and, I, and I can't like have that sort of liability. I'm not. And I th- I think it's because they sense a safety in somebody, and that's what we, I think more than anything we want in our life is a handful of people that we can be ourselves around Mm -hmm. and be safe. Yeah. And then, I I mean, that's uh, 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 part of the beauty of podcasting is we uh, are able to um do the it's you know the more vulnerable the more genuine we are and everything else the more people uh respond to it and so us as as comedians and podcasters we kind of uh, there's no real harm in in us sharing and making ourselves vulnerable we we in fact kind of get rewarded uh for doing that but um and isn't it I deep think, down what we really wanted to do with our stand up but instead kind yeah, of, of course. Put, a, put a glib coat of armor on of course that's yeah. why i'm getting out of the comedy clubs that's why i'm doing my own things and that's why i stopped too. independent shows and and just doing doing my own thing and exactly what i want to be doing um but uh yeah and i i realized that uh a long time ago that i was kind of done with the just telling jokes for I, I still have like let's be silly for silliness sake I have, a, I have a separate club act that i do and it's fun to do once in a while but, but babe, it's not what i'm passionate about no 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 babysitting drunks uh gets tiring after <laughs> a certain amount of time it does 
And there's so many other ways to uh, express yourself creatively. Thank, thank God. Yeah, I mean, I think podcasting is amazing, and it definitely it's it's very freeing. I mean, I did a lot of factory work and things like that, and this is definitely uh, uh, factories aren't aren't really a great place for sharing. <laughs> I, I <laughs> mean, some sometimes you would like really get down to uh, you know what. What are we doing here? <laughs> you know? What is it all about? <laughs> yeah, because stamp. We're what is? I mean, really, stamp. This is... <laughs> yeah, yeah, over and over again. But uh, but definitely, there's there there's also the you can't make yourself too vulnerable, or or now you're not you're not a man. You're not going to fit in. Yeah, you're gonna, yeah. Anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Um, no, I, I, this has been wonderful. I love talking these are, to you. These are my favorite kinds of conversations to have. Me too. Me too. Um, I'll put all the links up to your uh, stuff. Sure. Um, in the meantime, just you know, give me uh, shanemoss.com, M-A-U-S-S. Sure. Yeah, shanemoss, M-A-U-S-S dot com. Uh, here we are, podcast.com, at Shane Comedy on Twitter. Um uh, and, and what is the name of the uh, tour? It's called A Good Trip. Okay. Shane Moss. It's a two-hour solo show about mm -hmm. psychedelics. It's uh, it's like a third um, funny stories about my experiences, a third stand-up about psychedelics, and then a third like very TED Talky, um, okay. very kind of informative. Um, so it's a little different than your regular uh, stand-up set. So it's it's been so much fun, and, and people... Uh, people love it. I, I, the more information I put in, the more people like it. And it's been, that was one of the scariest things first putting it to, as a stand up to go, to go for a minute or two without, without a laugh. A laugh. Oh know? my God. Oh, as just really putting yourself out there, you know, compared to a regular club and, oh. and people really respond to it. And the, those are, those are usually people's favorite moments. They are. They are. Thank you, Shane. Thank you. Many thanks to uh, Shane. As I uh, mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'll put uh, links up to any uh, things that I mention uh, on the podcast up on our the show notes on our uh, website for this for this episode. Um, if I haven't mentioned it to you yet, um, one of the ways you can support the show, uh, a couple of different ways you can support the show, you can become a one-time donor through PayPal, or you can become a monthly donor through Patreon for as little as a dollar a month, uh, up to as much as you want to give. And um, through Patreon, I'm able to give you guys rewards, tier-based uh, tier, tier -based, uh, rewards, not T-E-A-R. We, we all have enough tiers in our lives. We don't need those kind of tiers. Um and then, um, <laughs> I give you tier-based rewards um, when you uh, donate monthly through Patreon. The other way you can support the show um, is if you're going to shop at Amazon, uh, enter through the link on our homepage. And it used to be uh, only for Amazon in the U.S., but now um, our link works for Amazon in Canada and the U.K., and what Amazon does is when you buy something from them, they give uh, the podcast a little bit of money. Actually, technically, they give it to me because um, uh, the podcast is not nonprofit. Um, but it helps the show greatly. And it doesn't make the price of what you're buying any more expensive. And the other way you can support the show non-financially is uh, spread the word about it through social media. That that helps a lot. Um 
What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, and less time-consuming, so even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. Let's do it a third time because really, doesn't that feel better? Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental for free. I want to tell you guys about Memory Rescue. Did you know your brain's history is not your destiny? You can make your brain better, including your memory. Learn how in the groundbreaking book by New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Daniel Amen, titled Memory Rescue. Whether you're at risk of memory loss because it runs in your family or you're noticing your own memory loss issues, this book offers answers that can improve your memory and decrease your risk of future memory-related problems or diseases. Amen's answers are based on proven clinical results from the tens of thousands of patients he's treated in his clinics across the country. For more information on Memory Rescue, go to www.memoryrescuebook.com. Author Dr. Daniel Amen is a board-certified psychiatrist who offers these proven methods to rescue your memory. Get your copy of Memory Rescue today, available wherever books are sold, in stores or online. Memory Rescue, because your brain's history does not have to be your destiny. MemoryRescueBook.com Let's get to some surveys. Uh, this is a shame and secret survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Crazy Cat Lady. And uh, she is bisexual in her 20s, raised in a stable and safe environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, a guy, when I was eight, decided to unbutton my shirt while I was in bed and proceeded to hug me even when I told him not to. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. Uh, father is an alcoholic, gets verbally abusive. Uh, any positive experience with the abuser or abusers? Yes, and yes, it does complicate it. Darkest thoughts, suicide, hurting people I love, hurting people I don't know. Darkest secrets, nothing I want to admit. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, control slash violent, sharing that makes me feel so ashamed and disgusting. You are not disgusting and you have nothing to be ashamed of. Um, as long as it's in your head or between you and a consenting adult. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I actually want to go out in public. I just can't. I wish people would understand. What, if anything, do you wish for? Happiness. To be able to go out in public without freaking out. Have you shared these things with others? Never. I'm too scared 
Uh, I'm too scared to, and for the fear of being judged. How do you feel after writing these things down? Kind of scared. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Try your hardest not to be afraid or ashamed. We can do this, both of us. Your survey really uh, touched me because um, it's bad enough to have crippling anxiety, but to feel alone in it and, and like there's nobody that you can share um, is, is really um, makes it so much more difficult. I really, really encourage you to reach out to a mental health um, professional because there might be a solution to it. I'm sure it wouldn't be overnight or simple, um, but you deserve better. You deserve better. And you deserve people who support and understand you. Uh, I think every person listening to that survey thought to themselves, I understand you. I don't judge you. Quite the opposite. Um, I feel compassion for what you're going through. This is a happy moment filled out by Clementine. And uh, she writes, When I lay down to sleep is when I obsess over anxious thoughts. I can often distract my brain during the day with tasks tasks or chores or entertainment. But when I lay down to sleep, I start to dwell. My feet twitch and I dig my nails into my skin. When I fall asleep stressed, I grind my teeth and wake up with a sore jaw. However, I've been with my current partner for eight months and I've noticed that a lot of these symptoms have subsided. When I begin to twitch my feet, he gently slides his foot between mine and wraps his arms around me. If I start digging my nails into my skin, he gently links his fingers with mine. It's never as if he's trying to get me to stop, just enough to acknowledge that he's there and that he's present with me. Last night, I woke up to him gently whispering that he loved me in my ear. It woke me up from a dead sleep, but I didn't think much of it. But the next morning, he mentioned that he woke up to drink, to drink water and could hear me grinding my teeth and was hoping if he gently woke me, I'd stop grinding. He has never tried to, quote, fix me. And I'm sure I'll be anxious forever, but I no longer procrastinate or fear my bed as a place of anxious, obsessive thoughts. Because as you often say, I no longer feel alone in what I'm experiencing. Thank you for sharing that with us. That is so heartwarming and beautiful to read. And he sounds, um, he sounds like a really good, a really good guy. And it's so awesome. That he uh, supports you in the way that you deserve to be supported. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Beamy Boo. And he is in his 40s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. He identifies as straight but too afraid. My body, the responsibility, negotiating consent, shame of the seductive relationship with my mother. Um, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse uh, one he reported and the second one um, that's interesting uh, I'm, I'm confused here because he checked off two things yes I reported it and no I've never been sexually abused um, 
He writes, uh, another boy pissed on my head in front of a group, uh, which included older girls. That must have been horrifying. Uh, he's been emotionally and physically abused. Uh, there was an intensely sexual atmosphere in our house when I was young. My parents got ridiculously angry in private, and I have an abiding fear of them as a result. I was bullied and beaten by other children. I was punished and humiliated by teachers for acting out, not being old enough or safe enough, to point out that my dad was becoming a full-blown alcoholic, from which he eventually died. Any positive experiences with the abuser or abusers? I have positive memories, but there are no feelings attached to them. The feelings of terror and being hunted uh, and left that remain uh, contradict these, quote, scenes of a happy life with them. Darkest thoughts. I want to eat people or at least put them in my mouth and taste them. I feel like that is the surest way to know them. I also want to mark them in some way so that others know that they are attached to me. You could construe those as descriptions of kissing and stroking, but it feels shameful because I feel scared of not being able to stop, of going too far and not being able to discriminate between different people. Darkest Secrets. I saw two guys approaching to rape a homeless woman. She resisted very loudly, and I called the police, who were kind of indifferent. I was terrified. It's six years later, and I still am. Uh, I threw away my future, uh, or one I was heavily invested in, just so I could get away from and avoid continuing to interact with and depend on someone who revolted me to the point of suicidal ideation. Uh, a friend of mine told me she was gang raped. We were both 15. I listened, but I didn't know what to do for her. That was 30 years ago. Uh, my dad told me his dad was a soldier, soldier in World War II. He said he was, quote, too good at killing. It was the only thing he ever said about him. His dad physically abused him and hospitalized him repeatedly as a small child. His dad died of alcoholism. My childhood friends who bullied me tried to force uh, one another to have sex with my sister. She was five. I walked in on them, and they didn't stop. My mother walked in shortly after. Wow, you have been through so many, many things. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being in a straight, long-term relationship with a good job and a happy family, parents who are proud of me, a boss who respects me, in-laws who are grateful to me, in the midst of this situation, I have normal, vanilla, consensual sex with my sensuous wife that brings us close physically and emotionally. Uh, sharing that, I feel a sense of peace and utter despair because it may always just be a fantasy. But also, I don't know if it's important to me or if it's just envy. It's very painful emotionally to fantasize about but unavoidable. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I don't blame you. I can't blame me. Shit was real and continues to be real. I need to live. I don't need your per permission for that. Because a lot of the neglect and trauma defies attribution. Someone, um, oh, why haven't you been able to share uh, that with someone? Because a lot of the neglect and trauma defies attribution. Someone or a lot of people should have done something and didn't. People, uh, victim and bystanders alike, didn't know what was happening or didn't know what to do about it or just thought they'd survive it without consequences. It continues. What, if anything, do you wish for? To tell the truth that comes out of me. To define what is fun, kind, and interesting for me in the very midst of all the horror and banality that tries to eclipse, minimize, and trivialize it. 
Have you shared these things with others? It's agonizing, even as they validate me, because the unmediated trauma rises up uh, in the moment before it gets resolved. It's what I need in those moments. It's shocking, though, because of how much is going on, and it's never what you expect. How do you feel after writing these things down? Exhausted, but proud, and curious, and mystified. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? People have lives elsewhere, not here with you. They don't see what's happening inside inside you just from looking at you. Sharing your life with them, you don't ever have to get it all right. You don't ever have to get it right. Start sharing what's there now, as it is, with them over and over. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's amazing how deep you guys... Uh, get with the surveys. And, you know, the other thing I really love reading is when somebody is experiencing some type of breakthrough when they get to the end of the survey. And even if it's painful, even if they're crying, um, to me, that's part of healing and getting better is getting in touch with those feelings that we've been burying. You know, um, our feelings aren't ever going to kill us, but the things we do to avoid feeling them might. This is an awful moment filled out by Trickster, and uh, she spells it T-R-I-C-H-S-T-E-R. And she writes, I've been experiencing severe depression, and my job is a major, major contributor to the situational part of my depression. Work stressors include a toxic environment, culture, and people, especially my project manager, who I work with on a daily basis. She is constantly micromanaging me and acting out of place, out, out of a place of fear, which is really triggering for my anxiety. It's gotten so bad, I've developed trichotillomania, a condition that manifests itself for me as, as compulsively pulling hair out of my scalp and body. Today, I had my daily check-in with my project manager, and she said, I am so busy, I am literally pulling my hair out. I laughed to myself because I thought, pretty sure you are not literally pulling your hair out, but positive that I am. I was actually pulling a strand of hair as she said that. Uh, and in parentheses, she put, I work remotely, so she doesn't know about my condition. Thank you for sharing that. I was just talking with somebody at uh, Thanksgiving dinner today. Uh, some friends were swapping stories about working for people who were really toxic. And I thought, man, I don't think people who have never worked for an abusive uh, boss realize how emotionally taxing um, that that can be. Um, this is a shame and secret survey filled up by a woman who calls herself the quiet one. She's in her 20s, uh, bisexual, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, she checked off, never been sexually abused, but she filled in, I've been in situations where I've been afraid to say no, so I have just gone along with kissing, touching, sets, sex, etc. with a guy because I feared if I had rejected him, there would be repercussions. Wouldn't call it sexual abuse, but it definitely did not make me feel okay. Uh, maybe I should change that question to, have you ever experienced um, sexual trauma uh, that was intentional or otherwise? Um, she's never been physically abused. 
uh, skip the question on uh, any positive experiences with people who've abused you. Darkest thoughts. So boring. I'm sorry, but thoughts of killing myself in a quiet way. I think about crashing my car into a tree or telephone pole almost daily, but they're just thoughts. Darkest secrets. I cut myself. I smoke cigarettes and have burned myself with them. I do drugs. Sexual fantasies most powerful to you. Honestly, just going down on a woman. Either that or being beat up by a man. The being beaten up by a man thing makes me feel disgusted with myself and confused. Um, I can't tell you how many people I know and whose surveys I read where their sexual fantasy is something that they find morally reprehensible or in reality causes them anxiety. And there's a book called uh, The Erotic Mind by a guy named Jack Morin that is all about that. And the ideas that he puts forward is being turned on by those things is our brain's way of trying to make sense of the things that give us anxiety. Uh, And oftentimes the more that subject matter produces anxiety in us, in reality, the more erotic to us it feels in our fantasies around that topic. So don't beat yourself up. You're just like the rest of us. Uh, What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would like to tell my mom everything that I've been struggling with. I would like to come out to her. I would also love to tell her that I'm sorry for being this way. That one kind of broke my heart because I thought she should be apologizing to you that you don't feel safe enough that you could come out to her. Now, I understand that probably 99% of children that come out to a parent are anxious about it. But she she is the one who needs to be sorry. If If she is homophobic, she is the one who should apologize for being that way. Um, don't ever apologize for how you were born. What, if anything, do you wish for? Happiness, stability, friendship, for my friends to be happy. Have you shared these things with others? No. How do you feel after writing these things down? Not great. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? There are people to talk to. I am here. Reach out. So much more love than hate out there. I couldn't agree with that more. I hope you find somebody to uh, to share this with because you deserve to be heard. You deserve you deserve to be validated because you are valid. I know that sounds all fucking touchy feely, uh, Sedona, um, but I am sitting on a giant crystal right now. But it's the truth, man. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself school psyched. Uh, she writes, I was born with a hand hand deformity called macrodactyly that affects my palm and two of my fingers on my right hand. I've had several surgeries, but it will never look like a normal hand. However, I have pretty much full uh, functioning and it really is not that bad. In the parentheses, Google will have some pretty fucking horrific pictures, FYI. I have a mild mild case of this condition, but shaking hands is something that's always been kind of awkward for me. 
reactions vary, and people don't usually say anything, but I can tell they realize something wasn't right about that handshake. At a party in college, I didn't want to deal with it, so I decided to offer my left hand to a guy I just met. His response was to kiss the back of my hand like I was some kind of royalty or something. I laughed, and later on, I shared with him about my hand. It was so funny because he immediately lifted up his shirt to show me a big dent, for lack of a better word, in the middle of his chest. He told me he was born with some kind of heart abnormality and had lots of surgeries to fix it. It made me feel so good, that connection with him. We didn't exchange numbers or anything, but I'd see him around campus and we would always acknowledge each other in passing. I love little moments like that, man. I I think it's so easy to get into a place of fear and feeling like the world isn't safe. Um, And then we have a moment where uh, we feel like, no, like, like, wow, I, there's a ton of people like me, or, or at the very least one person who knows what it's like. Um, but for some reason that, that thought always comes back that, um, uh, maybe that stuff that's stuck in the, uh, Amygdala, like uh, I was talking about with Shane. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Don't Come Near Me with those Girl Scout cookies. Uh, She is, this is a long one, uh, gay in her 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Um, Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, One, I reported and then some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, although I have no recollection of anything happening and largely spent my life thinking I was never sexually abused as a child, it did not occur to me until the past few years that I exhibited many of the characteristics that victim, victims of sexual abuse do. I was inexplicably hypersexual and began masturbating at the age of three or four. The older I became, the more frequently I masturbated, often seven to ten times a day, and created my own sex comics and stories that had illustrations and dialogue. I also had sexual fantasies about incest, not between my family members and I, uh, prostitution, and lesbian scenarios. By the age of six or seven, I was obsessed with having sex with boys and wrote frequently about it in my diary. Eventually, both my diary and my, quote, sex book were discovered and I was confronted by my parents. I felt attacked and shamed as if I had done something very wrong. I didn't know what kind of answers they were looking for as they grilled me about whether I had had sex with anyone and how I learned about the things I drew and wrote. I could not explain how I knew or why I wanted those things. Eventually, I blamed a girl I went to school with for telling me about them and said I just needed to get all of the bad thoughts out of my head, so I wrote them down. I have racked my memories over and over, trying to scratch up a clue as to whether there was any abuse. But if there is, it must be very repressed. Sometimes I wonder if it will all come flooding back to me on a random day, uh, the way it did with my ex when she was 19. As for the stuff I know for sure, I spent eight years of my life working as an erotic dancer. Although I am constantly exercising the boundaries I am comfortable with having between customers and I, there have been several instances where I have been aggressively groped, licked, or had men try to digitally penetrate me. The worst, however, was when I was a young new dancer and fell victim to a customer that slowly groomed me 
to allow him to molest me. It was very odd to fall victim to something like that as a young adult, and I felt angry and stupid for not realizing sooner. I have never told anyone about this, partially because I have been much more violently assaulted by other customers, and I fear that people will try to compare the way I face assault on a daily basis to the way this man preyed on and manipulated me for months dismissing that the experience was actually very damaging. And with that, I have to end by saying, although sex workers are in the business of touching, being touched, and providing sexual services, their bodies are still theirs. Be respectful. And theirs is uh, in capital capital letters. Yeah, it's so fucked up that um, some people create a, a, you know, some graph of validity of things when really it's the message of what we experience that we take from it that causes the damage, you know, that you are an object to me or you don't matter or you're not, you're not even human. Um, what, whatever that message is, it doesn't really matter what the envelope is that it, it arrives in. Um, Uh, She's been emotionally abused. My father constantly scrutinized my weight, sometimes commenting that it was, quote, good to skip meals or to eat very little. When I first had my braces put on, he said something to the effect of, maybe it'll be harder for you to eat and you can lose some weight. God, that is so fucking awful. He also constantly talked down to my mother, brother, and I, made fun of us and criticized us. He never took me seriously or wanted to help. He refused to teach me how to drive and would not take me to get my license. Finally, at the age of 18, my boss insisted on taking me to the DMV herself. I was angry that I had to wait so long to finally receive my license when he made sure that my brother had his permit at 15. But looking back, what enrages me the most of all is that he refused to help me feel out fill out FAFSA forms or co-sign for student loans when I was a teenager. I don't know what uh, FAFSA stands for, but I'm sure somebody will e- email me and fill me in. I remember pleading with him, trying to explain that I needed the paperwork done so I could go to school, but he wouldn't budge. I never went, and 10 years later, I'm still struggling to find work that pays a living wage with only a primary education outside of the sex industry, which I am trying to get away from. Not surprisingly, he filled out any necessary paperwork for my brother, who went to a prestigious private college and now has a lucrative career. I'm not sure if this was favoritism or sexism, but I don't think a truly loving parent would ever deny their child the opportunity to create a rich and happy life for themselves. Side note, I'm currently working on getting back into school, which has been very difficult since I grapple with anxiety and depression, but I'm trying my damnedest. My ex-wife was very emotionally abusive after her opiate addiction took a turn for the worst, and she began slinging heroin. This attracted shady, unsavory characters that naturally latched on to her as goons. She would frequently berate me in front of them, calling me names and belittling me. They would stand directly behind her and echo her sentiments, multiplying her slurs until the room was a loud din, exclaiming what a worthless, stupid, and undeserving slut I was. There were many times she would remind me she had a gun and threatened to shoot me in my sleep, although for some reason I never, I had never seen it. I am so surprised that I made it through this time in my life as emotionally and mentally intact as I did. I think part of the resilience came from directly transitioning into the most fulfilling, loving relationship I've ever had. Um, man, that that stuff about your dad, um, that that to me is, 
I know I, I read all kinds of horrifying shit on here. Um, but for some reason, it's the stuff I can almost understand more somebody who is abusive because of some addictive, compulsive thing that's out of control that they think they can control. It, it, it's the kind of lazy abuse, you know, the abuse of, of, um, arrogance. Um, I don't know how to describe it, but, um, that, uh, darkest thoughts. Being raped or gang raped, sometimes after being drugged. Going into a porn theater and fucking every man, no matter how disgusting or vile they are. Being abused slash molested by an older, almost grandfather-like figure. Imagining myself as a teenager in the fantasy, he tricks me into sex by, quote, showing me the ropes, and then chastises me and shames me for seducing him after he has finished. Um, you know, that's a, that is a uh, great example of... Um, the, the previous, uh, survey where I was talking about how the, the, the things that make us the most anxious or have hurt us the most sometimes are the things that we sexualize in our fantasies. And this is, um, to me, like a version of taking back what that customer who groomed you did, um, in your fantasy. It's kind of a way of, of taking control back. At least my two cents. Uh, unless you're Canadian, and then it's a cent and three quarters. Oh, that is the dumbest joke, but I like it. Uh, darkest Secrets. Uh, although I identify as a lesbian, I once secretly dated a man. I accidentally got pregnant, but didn't know until I miscarried. He's still the only man I've ever slept with, and for a very long time, he was the only thing I could fantasize about while masturbating. Uh, you are definitely not alone in that. I've heard many people uh, share that uh, before. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, sexual fantasies where I am objectified, disrespected, and debased are the strongest. Although I'm comfortable admitting that, I'm still confused about how I can be turned on by things that are inherently bad, quote, bad, and abusive. I feel guilty that the things that turn me on are nightmares that many people have had to live through. Go read that book, The Erotic Mind by Jack Morin. Uh, it's very illuminating. And I, any of you struggling uh, with the thoughts that you have uh, or the things that turn you on, um, it, read that book. You, you deserve to be comfortable with what turns you on. Um, again, as long as uh, you're not harming anybody. Have uh, you shared these things with others? To a certain extent, I've shared my fantasies about being taken advantage of or used. However, I've never explained that I often think of men to get off. As a physical stimulus, I'm attracted to women, but when I'm left alone with my thoughts, I often reach for the grimiest, most repulsing scenario I can think of, and I think fantasizing about men has less to do with being attracted to them and more about eliciting a feeling of disgust. That makes total sense to me total sense to me. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Inspired to have some peanut butter crackers. If you haven't tried cashew uh, butter yet, I highly recommend it. It's tasty. Tastes a little weird at first. And I recommend uh, if you can get uh, cashew butter or pistachio butter raw, it is awesome. It's expensive, but it's 
it's worth it. It's so much like all the minerals and stuff um, uh, are retained in it when it's ground up raw. Um, yeah, and that's the end of uh, her survey. Thank you. Thank you for sharing all that stuff. And I hope you hear uh, this being read and you go, you go read that book and stop being so hard on, uh, hard on yourself. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Nimrod. And she writes, Never in my life had I found someone with experiences so similar, similar to my own that I felt safe enough to open up, knowing that it would be received kindly and that the response would be what I would want to hear. Until I began taking my breaks with one of my coworkers. She told me about her struggles in life and I told her about mine. We both dealt with domestic abuse growing up, the same mental illnesses, and had similar views on life. I was thrilled to have finally found someone who effortlessly understood and validated me. I felt like I had someone on my team until I got called down to human resources out of the blue one day. She had reported me for harassment. <laughs> wow. Wow, I can't even imagine what a mindfuck that must have been. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Mickey Mouse. He's uh, straight in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, um, never been sexually abused, uh, been emotionally abused. To be very clear, the abuse was not from my parents. It was from my friends. I had a very high voice when I was younger, literally reminiscent of Mickey Mouse. I was made fun of throughout my childhood by bullies as well as close friends until my voice deepened when I was 14. After that, I was still made fun of for my late-blooming, awkwardly tall, and overly skinny body. To this day, if someone teases me, I have a hard time distinguishing it if it's mean-spirited, uh or a playful, endearing tease. Any positive experiences with abusers? I've had mixed feelings about the friends of mine who made fun of me when I was younger, one of whom was my best friend. I figured it's been long enough ago that it shouldn't bother me, and they probably don't even know they did anything wrong, but I can't bring myself to forgive them, and they haven't done enough to redeem themselves. Well, if they're still in your life, you know, it might be... It might be worth um, gently bringing it up in conversation with them and let them know that you're not doing it to shame them or to punish them, but for you to get it off your chest so that you can stop feeling um, this feeling trapped inside you that you that you don't like. Um, I'm also curious as to know why you didn't feel like you could share any of this stuff with your parents because it, it sounds like... Um, you didn't have any place to go. And to me, when a parent has su successfully um, raised their child in an emotionally validating environment, uh, that, that kid feels like they can go to their parent when they're in pain. Um, anyway, uh, darkest thoughts. 
really just suicide. Sometimes when things get really bad, I just think about how easy it would be to let it all go. So easy, so freeing. I think about what it would be like to cut myself, how it would feel, or how easy it would be to take all of my clonopin and beta blockers at the same time and let my heart slowly ease into death. I'm ashamed of thinking these things and also afraid to tell others and become the cliche of the person who uses threats of suicide as a way to get attention and validation, so I remain paralyzed. You know, I don't think you need to share... Um, the extreme of that and the things that you're thinking about doing, um, I think if you shared with somebody that um, that you are feeling, um, I, I don't know what the, the phrase would be because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you're struggling right now and you're having trouble feeling connected and safe in the world and you're confused or afraid as to how to go about um, getting help um, and that it's, you know, you would like to feel more hope. Just a thought. Uh, darkest Secrets. This is going to sound silly, maybe. I'm married and highly faithful to my wife. My friend was getting married and had a bachelor party in Vegas. At one point, we went to a strip club, obviously, and I was adamant that while I was going to go, I wouldn't get a lap dance simply because it's against my code as a married man. However, my friend called over a stripper to give me a lap dance and paid for it for me. The stripper tried to start. I adamantly said, no, give the lap dance to somebody else, and tried to physically stop her from touching me while begging my friends to help and please respect my boundaries. They didn't help. She kept going, and I didn't know how to stop her without physically pushing her, which I didn't think would go well. I was also quite tipsy at the time, and as it dawned on me that I was losing this battle, I simply sunk into the experience ashamed of my boner touching someone, not my wife, and feeling violated by my friends and by this stripper. I never told my wife because I know it will hurt her, and while for me the experience was traumatic and violating, I have a feeling she won't be able to see it that way, as I am probably the only man on the planet ashamed of getting a lap dance. No, I I, I don't believe for a second that, that you are. Um, and what you felt is 100% valid, man. It's about. It's not about what other people's boundaries are. It's about what your boundaries are and whether or not people are listening to you. Um, and it doesn't matter whether these people all thought it was, you know, fun and games. What matters is what you felt. And um, I'm, I'm glad you filled that out because um, I think a lot of times both sexes are kind of painted into this monolithic um really gross, generic idea of what a man or a woman uh, or a trans uh, person is. Um, and it uh, it keeps a lot of us quiet. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Needs More Positive Reinforcement. And she writes, I am not close with my parents uh, or my sister, so I always tend to find joys in the various pets I've had in my life. My first dog died when I was 13, and I was completely devastated. My friends wanted to help and support me during this time, so they decided to take me to a movie. 
I guess they didn't do that much research because they ended up taking me to see Marley and me. As expected, I had a meltdown at the end and my friends didn't bring tissues, so I was wiping my tears with buttery and salty popcorn bag, which only irritated my eyes even more. But hey, it was nice to know I had a solid, albeit misguided, group of friends in my time of need. Oh my God, that's so awful to think about having to use a salty popcorn bag. I was When I was in college one time, uh, my friends and I were leaving a pizza place and uh, uh, my friend Mike, actually, who was on the, the podcast, Mike Sebahar, uh, he had put those, you know, that shaker that has the uh, chili peppers in it. He had um, shaken that onto his pizza and apparently there was one still uh, under his fingernail and he went to rub his eye and that flake, that chili flake, got under his eyelid and i don't know if i've ever heard somebody scream that loud so uh we had to pull over and run in and find a a fountain for uh for him to flush his eye out i don't know why i felt the need to tell that story it's my fucking podcast how dare you judge me this is a shame and secret survey filled out by uh a guy who calls himself looking he is uh gay in his 20s raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment ever been the victim of sexual abuse Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I was 9 or 10, and I used to experiment with another boy my age. We lived in a small uh, Midwestern town where sex was taboo, so homosexuality was not even acknowledged. Side note, I was called gay throughout elementary school, but I'm not sure that I knew what that meant until high school. In other words, I knew it was a slur, but I didn't connect it with the sexual act or feeling until after puberty. We did things like climb into the shower in his basement and pretend it was a mind control unit where we had to do whatever the other one said, including getting naked, touching ourselves, all kinds of vaguely domineering shit. We would explore our bodies and pretend that they were man tests. As we got older, he was diagnosed with relatively low-functioning Asperger's. We're both almost 30 now, and he lives at home, not able to have a job or go to school because of how severe his issues are. It's also complicated by the abuse I suffer at the hands of his mother. Uh, She would take us to youth group at a fundamental Christian church where I was led to believe that the events of the, quote, Left Behind series were about to occur any day. I legitimately thought that 9-11 would lead to the rise of the Antichrist and tried to warn my parents. They obviously didn't agree with this worldview. One day in my teen years, as his problems grew worse and he was becoming less functional, she even told me that despite the hardships of adopting my friend, it was all okay because God told her that I had a special purpose that she would help me reach. I still worry that I somehow am his abuser. It all felt consensual, but what if it wasn't? What if I'm the cause of his current dysfunction? First of all, you were a child. And second of all, it from what you've described, it was consensual. And again, the most important thing is that you were a child and resist the urge to make somebody else's trauma about us unless it's been explicitly expressed to you. Um, Anyway, continuing. 
darkest thoughts, I have a serious, and that's in capital letters, belly kink. I fantasize about becoming obese and having a giant belly from pigging out whenever I feel like it. I fantasize about being fed by a partner who wants me to be huge. I fantasize about being shamed by friends and coworkers for busting out of my clothes and being teased for letting myself go. I almost exclusively masturbate to before and after images of skinny guys getting really fat through college. There was a a memory that I've recently attached to it. I had a babysitter after school from infancy to middle school, and her husband was massive, 350 pounds of pure lard, and I think his size is somehow related to my early sexual desires. There was also a fat Santa when I was seven uh, that tickled my knee and told me I was girl crazy, which feels related somehow that I haven't unpacked yet. I'm super afraid of being judged for this kink. Given the health risks of being fat, I'm worried that someone would think that I'm putting sexual gratification ahead of my health, but I wish I could let go and gain 50 pounds and eat all the chocolate fudge ice cream and have a skinny man worship my growing belly and stretch marks. Thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, things that we don't hear as frequently on the on the podcast, I'm always appreciative when... Um, when somebody uh, opens up and shares that. Um, and I can tell you that I don't think any person uh, who's a regular listener to this podcast is uh, judging you. You sound like a really, really sweet guy. Uh, Darkest Secrets. Uh, while coming to terms with my sexuality in college, I was dating a girl. We had both tried to lose our virginity to each other, but I was unable to stay hard long enough to ejaculate. And the quotes are in parentheses, big surprise now. We had tried to have sex to completion two to three times, and we both didn't quite understand that it wasn't just about finishing. One night, she slept over after we tried to have sex. The next morning, I woke up fucking hard as a rock. To me, this was our chance. She seemed resistant at first, holding the blankets up against herself. By the time I got a condom on, she seemed less resistant. We had sex, and she complained about pain and told me she hadn't wanted to do it. I think it was, uh, she didn't want, I think it was rape. I'm finding it hard to type that not in the passive voice. It feels like I raped her, and it makes me wonder if I'm a monster. How could I be so blind to her signals? First of all, you don't sound like a monster. Um, and second of all, uh, if you're still in contact with her, maybe maybe connect to her and say, hey, there's a difficult conversation that I'd, I'd like to have because I'm afraid um, that, I, that I might have hurt you. Um, you know, there's a gray area that is really fucking confusing. Um, and maybe this is one of those things that's just in that gray area. I don't know. I wasn't there, but um, I think it would be worth a worth a shot. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I guess I already shared this. Ha ha. Uh, sharing it makes me feel makes it feel a little less taboo. I've always shared this fantasy with my partners, but I think it makes them feel objectified, and that's not the intent. Uh, There's so much more in a relationship, but I also can't erase this kink. I don't want a partner who feels the same shame that I feel about it, but so far, I'm still working on that. You absolutely deserve somebody who, at the very least, understands it, and hopefully somebody who can... um, um, 
you know, find a way to share your fantasy with you that um, is respectful to both of you. I've been involved uh, with an online community of gay gainers, but it always felt robotic and about numbers on a scale, not the excitement of indulgence that I feel is my sense of arousal. For me, like the biggest thrill in sharing a a fantasy with somebody isn't this fantasy itself. To me, it's the acceptance of the fantasy, the validation of it. That That to me is like the awesome emotional part that that is more satisfying to me than the physical arousal um have you shared these things with others some things i have but the questionable sexual abuses this is the first time i've written any of it down or told anyone that's what i'm feeling how do you feel after writing these things down i feel lightheaded like uh, I'm processing things that i've been holding off on it's a little confusing and makes me want to take a nap uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I don't think that I have a dental procedure fetish, but I get a sort of parallel arousal from dental procedures. The best way I can describe it is that I don't get an erection, but it feels quasi-sexual to have someone digging around in my mouth. It's almost like the ASMR arousal that's not sexual, but feels similar. I want to know if anyone else experiences a similar reaction to something that is clearly a fetish for some but doesn't cause personal sexual arousal. Also interested in talking to gainers who aren't robots, who can only focus on the belly. Why is the community online so reductionist? Well, if you hear me reading this and you email me, I will keep your email on file. And if anyone... Uh, writes in about the dental procedure thing or about um, uh, being a, uh, as you call it, a gainer, uh, I'll, uh, I'll forward those to you. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Maria, and I just love this one. She writes um, her happy moment, sitting in the support group for eating disorders that I set up and realizing that the members were talking and listening to each other so wonderfully, giving profound advice and support to each other that the time and space I created has spawned safe and honest conversations between people once strangers living in the same town, now able to meet and be helped by others going through the same thing. I had a little mindfulness moment where I realized that in just a few short months, the group is now completely meeting its objective and is actually helping people. I couldn't help but smile for my achievement and in the achievements of those who attend and share their experiences. The regulars have become friends, and I've been humbled by their bravery and commitment to recovery, which they now say might just be possible. Well done, us. And then a bunch of question marks. Yeah, no, no question marks. Well done, you. At that, like that moment that you just described is my goal in doing this podcast, is to get people reach out to each other and help each other to recover and experience that relief in knowing we're not alone. That relief in forming a support network that is there for things outside of our issues, things unrelated to that. And to be able to look in the mirror and, you know, not hate ourselves. Um, Maybe one day even love ourselves. Now I'm getting cheesy. (laughs) 
again, I'm so thankful for, for all of you for, um, listening to the podcast, supporting me in whatever ways you can. And, uh, even if it's just listening, even if it's just downloading the podcast, even if it's an episode that you're not going to listen to, that, that helps, uh, downloading it. Um, and, um, your feedback always helps. Sometimes even the ones that hurt to read, there's something constructive in there. And you're usually so good at, uh, gently, uh, suggesting, uh, things constructive um, or disagreeing with me about something. It's it's pretty rare the one I get that is just openly hostile and undiplomatic. And um, yeah, I just feel like a really lucky guy. And um, if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, um, get out of your comfort zone. Consider asking for help. It um, changed my life. I'm so glad I did. And um Never forget you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.